All right. Such a happy song with such angry stick figures. <laughs> but we do continue this series, and it's an important series. Because how we see God actually helps us figure out who we are. In fact, our hope is during the series, you might begin to see the connection between the, the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. That you'll see that there is one God and that his character is probably different than what you think. And, and in fact, I want to encourage you, no matter where you might be on your spiritual journey, our hope is that you reframe how you see God based on who he's revealed himself to be. Not create your own version of God, but actually allow your heart and mind to realign with who he says he is. Well, this past week, Billy Graham passed away. He was referred to as America's pastor. Uh, apparently, 215 million people attended one of his events over the years, and he pointed people towards Jesus. And even beyond that, he was a confidant to presidents from both sides of the aisle for decades. He was an outspoken critic of segregation. And he was there for us in the midst of tragedies over the years. And he said something really important about this idea of understanding who God is. Listen to what Billy Graham once said. You will never understand who you are until you understand who God is. So in week one, we looked at how God revealed himself as I am. And Jesus even used that same phrase to describe himself. I am the one who was and is and is to come. That Hebrew word is Yahweh. And then last week, we saw how there was actually this moment where God revealed his long version of his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, or I am, I am, or the Lord, the Lord, and and just a portion of it in Exodus 34, 6, is this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And seven times we see this phrase used in the scriptures throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And one of those times is, comes up in a really odd moment. It's in the book of Jonah. Maybe you know the story of Jonah. Maybe you remember the vegetables that acted it out for us. And veggie tales. And I, I want to make sure you, you see beyond maybe what you heard of as a child, because this story is, is pretty unique. See, not only was Jonah reluctant to go to Nineveh, Jonah was actually intent on dying instead of going to Nineveh. See, he was a prophet that God wanted to send to the people of Nineveh to warn them, if you turn to God... God will forgive you, and he did not want that to happen. He wanted them to be punished by God, to remain distant from God. And so when that call came to go, he went, but the wrong direction. And he gets in a boat, and in the boat there's this terrible storm, and he tells the people in the boat, you know what, it's probably my fault because I'm running away from God. And they said, okay, and they threw him overboard. <laughs> Just as he asked. He would rather drown then see the Ninevites find hope. But a giant fish swallowed him up. He changes his mind. He spat out, basically puked onto the side of the sea, and then reluctantly goes into the city. And listen to this sermon. It's the shortest, maybe worst sermon in the Bible. And yet, tens of thousands of people heard and turned to God. Listen to this sermon he gives. Walking through the city, 
Jonah proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That was the message. Some of you are thinking, oh, I wonder if Eric will ever do a message that short. (laughs) But in the moment, that was all they needed. The people of Nineveh turned to God. In fact, the scriptures tell us that that so many turned to God that eventually the king made an edict that it was now the rule, the law of the land is to worship the God of Israel. Isn't that just like a politician? He, He makes a rule that is completely unnecessary because everybody's already doing it. He was the one person that at that point had not. It shows the power of the people in the midst of even an evil dictator. See, the Ninevites were terrible people. They had oppressed even the Israelites, and Jonah did not want them to turn to God, and he was afraid that he might get killed. And so as a result, Jonah, one of the most effective missionaries of all time, had a rather unusual response. Listen to what he prays in Jonah chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I hate that about you. I added that last part, but it's obvious. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't remember the vegetable saying that. See, he was a suicidal missionary. He would rather die than see the people he hated have a chance with God. I know that you're slow to anger, God. I know that you are gracious and compassionate, and that's why I didn't want to go. Have you ever felt like life's not fair? That's how Jonah felt in this moment. He despised the Ninevites and did not feel it was fair that they were given another chance. If you remember as a kid wrestling with this philosophical question with your parents, telling them it's not fair. Big brother gets to do this. Little sister gets to do that. Maybe you've had kids and you've had to help with this question. I can almost guarantee any of you that were ever told it's not fair and you try to explain to them life is not fair and now here's where I'm convinced none of you have ever heard your child say this oh thank you mother (laughs) thank you father for telling me the truth that life is brutish and wrong and short no child feels that way we don't feel that way we don't grow up naturally coming around to seeing that life is not fair, and instead, in the midst of what feels unfair, we become bitter, not just towards the people who hurt us, but towards, towards God. Uh, Ted Beasley, who helped start our church, told me that as his kids were growing up, and they said life's not fair, they, they taught a little song to the kids. It wasn't Jesus loves the little children. It was, you can't, Always get what you want. I don't know if the kids liked that. I'm just telling you that's what Ted did. But that's, that's true. That's real life. And it's easy for us to trust in God and even believe in God when everything is going just the way we want it. But what happens when our dreams are shattered? What happens when people hurt us? Suddenly it's hard to believe that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. 
There's a, a, a term, maybe you've heard it before. Psychologists use this term. It's, it's the word projection. And, and what they describe is that oftentimes we carry around a lot of pain because of what others have done to us. And as a result, we project that pain onto others that didn't do the bad things that were done to us. And you know, we do the same thing with God. We blame God for the evils of others. We project on him our bitterness because of our pain. And even in the midst of that, here is the Father, our Heavenly Father's response. Numbers 23, 19 says it this way. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? See, God says to you today, I'm not like humanity. I love you. Can't you see that I would never hurt you? And God knows that you and I need more than words. And so he wants to show us that he's slow to anger, faithful and abounding in love. And so to help us navigate, we, we, we want to show you three vignettes of maybe circumstances similar to what you've faced and the prayers that they prayed. Here's the first, dealing with an angry God. Dear God, thank you for this day and all of my blessings. Please bless my parents and all my aunts and uncles and cousins. And God, I'm sorry I didn't stand up for Stephen today when Trip pushed him down. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I called Rebecca a snot, even though she is. And God, I'm also really sorry about how I'm such a screw up. I don't know why I can't do what he asks. All I had to do was throw one stupid strike, and instead, I walk in the winning run. I let everyone down. I let my team down. I let my family down. And now my dad thinks I'm a loser, because I am a loser. There was so much pressure, so many expectations. I don't know how there was any way I'm going to be able to make anyone happy, especially myself. I just keep seeing that disappointed look on his face. The way he tilted his head backwards and yelled out loud with both his palms slamming into his head. I could hear his voice from the backstop all the way to the pitcher's mound. He was so disappointed in me. He looked embarrassed. Like he couldn't believe it was his son making it happen. God, I wish I wasn't visible. Amen. we need to understand that God is slow to anger. But the prayer of this young man reminds us that many of us have a hard time seeing God as slow to anger because those who represent God have been very angry. It's almost as if he was praying, God, are you angry like my dad? A father's disappointment submerges us into thinking we need to become perfect. A mother's anger overwhelms us and every time we mess up. Maybe you grew up in an environment where you had that disapproving glare, that dismissive turn of the back, that withdrawn approval, that absent affection, that drunken tirade, a shouted, expletive-laden, you are a worthless piece of garbage. So you, some of us have experienced emotional abuse. Some of us experienced physical abuse. And in the midst of that, we can easily begin to 
see the world through hurt and angry eyes when we've experienced an oversized fist to an undersized jaw or ten swings of the belt when a gentle rebuke would have sufficed. So we live in a broken world and even the people who are there to care for us sometimes don't know how or don't. There's abuse And maybe for some of us, uh, the abuse was not physical, but maybe you grew up in a toxic environment where the anger of others has turned you into a perfectionist, where because of the anger of others, you actually are angry with the ones that are closest to you, and you don't even know why. I wonder if we could admit, if we just take a moment, deep inside would acknowledge that perhaps there's a part of us that's angry towards God because of what has happened to us, what's happened around us. But Exodus 34 is reminding us that there's something you have to know. God is saying, I am slow to anger. I am not like humanity. I want you to remember what happened in this moment. We looked at it last week, but but the people of Israel had been freed from their slavery, miraculously freed. Ten signs of God's power over the evil that they were experiencing and even the splitting of the Red Sea. And then now, as Moses disappeared for 40 days, interacting with God, they become nervous and they revert back to what they knew, to what all the other tribes believed and an angry God that needed to be appeased. And so they built a golden calf because the angry God in their mind needed a golden calf to not be angry. And we look at that and we think, that's just so ridiculous. And yet, what do we go to as our idols instead of going to the one who is there for us? Now, interestingly enough, Moses comes down and he is mad. He's super mad. In fact, he breaks the tablets. He melts down the golden calf. And then he takes what's left of the tablets and the golden calf and he makes all the Israelites drink it. Moses had an anger problem. This was before the 12 steps that could help him, right? But I wonder if the people of Israel saw God as a lot like Moses and angry, not easily pleased. And so here we have this interesting moment where Jonah, who knows the story of Israel, who knows the story of his people, people who have been forgiven and forgiven and forgiven. And at the end of this story in Exodus 34, we're reminded that God is not angry like Moses is angry. Instead, he says to Moses, let's just start over. Let's just start over. And so Jonah knows this story, but, but rather than seeing God as slow to anger as a good thing, now he's mad about it because it's led to the forgiveness of people he cannot stand, the Ninevites. He's upset with God because he's slow to anger, because he's willing to forgive people that he hates. See, it's human nature for us to get mad at those we do not like. And, and we do not want God's love to extend beyond us, especially not to those with whom we disagree or differ or dislike or despise. See, God does get angry at sin because sin is destructive, but his anger doesn't change his posture towards you and me. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 5.16. says that God made him, his son, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, God came and walked among us 
And because sin is destructive, because it does hurt us and hurt others, it does have consequences, he willingly took sin and punishment on himself. And so when God looks at you, he sees you through the lens of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He sees you as right before him. He sees the righteousness of God and says to you, I'm not angry. Let's start again. It's important that you hear this today. God is not angry at you. I want you to hear that. God is not angry at you. No matter what you may have done, no matter what mistakes you may have made, God is not angry at you. There are things we do that that separate us from his love, that destroy us and destroy those around us, and his heart breaks when we go in that direction, but he's still there waiting for us to turn back. There's this beautiful passage from Zephaniah. I doubt any of you read this week, but I want to read it to you because it's it's beautiful. This is how God sees you. Zephaniah 3. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Heavenly Father sings over you. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Every Sunday, we, we create the space that we can sing to God. And part of what's so beautiful about that, for some of us, it's our love language. We immediately, that, that music, those lyrics, reconnect our heart to God. And we're right back in step with Him. For others of us, maybe that's, that's not our thing, but it's still powerful when you, when you see those lyrics. The transcendent power of music can at least get rid of the distractions. But, but this is saying, of course, not just that we could sing to God and He is worthy of our praise, but that he sings over us. It's a healing song. It's a song that heals the injuries of the past. It's a protective song that shields us from fear. It's a song of salvation. God is slow to anger, but God is also faithful. Consider this next vignette about dealing with unfaithfulness. Oh, God, I can't breathe. I feel so sick to my stomach. It's like waves that come and go that I can sometimes control, but this heavy chain, God, it is so heavy, and it's always there, constant. I can't get rid of it no matter what I do. I can't eat. I can barely muster up the strength to get out of bed in the morning. To smile at the people that I love. Why? Why again? Why me? I never wanted this. I never asked for this. I never signed up for this. She said she would never do this again. She said that that things are going to be different. He was nothing. Meant nothing. A mistake. Never again, she said. Never again. trusted her. I made changes. I took steps. I tried so hard to make this work. I come home and see two empty wine glasses. 
I see your shirt thrown across the arm of our couch, that unfamiliar shirt thrown in a clump on our floor. Why did this happen? Why am I not enough for her? What did I do to deserve this punishment? I wish I could go back in time and never have met her. I'm such an idiot. How could I be so stupid to trust her again? I deserve it. It's my own fault. Is there anyone in this world I can count on, God? Anyone I can trust? Are you even listening to me, or am I just talking to myself? I don't know anymore. Can I even count on you? The unfaithfulness of others, the betrayal of others, tempts us to feel as if God has been unfaithful to us, as if he has betrayed us. The writer of Proverbs has similar sentiments. Proverbs 20, many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man, who can find? See, some of us are carrying wounds from the result of the damage done by broken promises and infidelity. And we take what has hurt us and we project that onto God. If you'll trust me for just a moment, I, I want you to think about a moment in your life where someone broke your heart. I, I want you to think about that moment when someone walked out, when someone didn't follow through, when someone demonstrated They didn't care for you. I want you to think about what was happening in that moment to you. Maybe you were laying on bed, sobbing. Maybe you were in the bathroom with your fist balled up in pain. If you have taken yourself there, I want you to pause the scene for just a moment, and I want you to see that Jesus was there too. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your anguish, he was there. You may not have seen him, but he was there. The scriptures tell us in the midst of pain, he mourns with us, he weeps with us. One of the most important and shortest verses in the Bible simply says this, Jesus wept. Maybe you remember the story, there, there were some good friends of Jesus and one of them was sick and they reached out to Jesus, come heal your buddy Lazarus just like you've healed all these other strangers and he did not come. And by the time Jesus got there, he had already been entombed for a few days. And Mary was undone. She was hopeless. She had lost her brother and her leader, her friend Jesus, had not been there for her. John eleven thirty three says it this way. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. He cried because he could see that those he cared for were alone. They were carrying this burden alone. They were scared. They were broken. They were grieving. But I also think that he wept not just out of empathy, but, but out of an awareness that they did not see the solution to their pain was standing right next to them. 
that rather than turning to him in the midst of their pain, they turned against him. I can just imagine under his breath, Jesus saying in that moment, it won't always be this way. It's not fair now that suffering has this kind of power. It's not fair that that people are cut off from hope and blinded by despair. It's not fair that a wounded heart could convince people that God is unloving and unfaithful, but it will not always be this way. See, Jesus weeps because we weep. He grieves because we grieve. He mourns when we mourn. But he also weeps because we lack hope and we're not turning to him. See, Jesus carried a cross so that you don't have to carry a wounded heart. Do you turn to him in the midst of your pain? See, God is faithful even if no one else is. That word faithful means Fidelity or dependability. See, God is faithful to the promises he keeps. Listen to Isaiah 46. God himself testifies this about his nature. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. See, it's in God's very nature to keep the promises that he makes. And some of you are thinking, well, wouldn't it be easier for God if he just didn't make any promises so we wouldn't have so many expectations of him? But see, God is a relational God. The only way to develop trust in a relationship is to make and fulfill promises. See, any foundation of a relationship is built on trust. And the reason that God puts so many promises out there in the scriptures is so that we will test him and see that he's real. See, the the challenge for us is our faith is too often based on our circumstances. See, God is good even if our circumstances are not. Faith is believing in God even when the things around us are falling apart. See, the scriptures never promised. God never promised there would be no trials. In fact, he promised the opposite. He said, there will be many trials. The scriptures do not promise there will not be temptation. In fact, it promises the opposite. You will be tempted. But it's in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those temptations, if we can learn to turn to him rather than from him, that we'll experience his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, even when those around us do not offer as much. See, the basic definition of faith is stepping out and believing that God is going to make things right. The only way to know an invisible God is actually to trust him. This past week, I had a chance to share a coffee with a couple of friends. One is a new friend. In fact, he just started coming to Gateway South on a search to, to figure out if he needs a new God. And the first Sunday he was with us was... On the Sunday, we started a series called Get a New God. And so I I told him one of the promises in the scripture is that if you seek after God, he will reveal himself to you. So I encouraged him, why don't you start just praying, God, if you're real, show me. And then read a chapter, at least a chapter a day of the Gospel of John. John was an eyewitness of Jesus. He was Jesus' best friend and even wrote his gospel so that we might believe. Well, I get an email from him a couple days later. And he, he did something bolder than what I even asked him to do. Listen to what he wrote. He wrote, 
I've been praying to be of service to God. I didn't tell him to do that, but he did. And I've been praying that God would reveal himself to me, and guess what? He is. He then went through two examples of opportunities he was given to serve other people. And then he says, I've been reading John. My heart resonates with every word. I can see and hear Jesus. See, God will keep his promises. Are you willing to find out those promises and seek after him? Maybe for some of us it's not seeing God as slow to anger or as seeing God as faithful, but maybe you struggle with seeing God as abounding in love. Let's watch this for an example of unbalanced love. Heavenly Father, please, please be with my Sam. She just seems so, I don't know, just so hurt and wounded, Lord. Ever since she lost custody of the kids, she lashes out at everyone. Even her friends can't seem to get her to talk anymore. Whenever we talk, she becomes tense about everything. It always builds to, you must be loving this, huh, Mom? All those I told you so's feeling good now. But I don't feel good about any of this, Lord. I just want to help her. I just want her to open up. But we can't seem to get two words in without a blow-up. Oh, it reminds me of our father, all that anger and nothing to do with it. Lord, I know I've failed her. I know she sees me as a hypocrite. That I, for some reason, am looking down on her, but I'm not. Jesus, all I want is to have a relationship with my daughter. It's enough that I've lost my marriage. Now I'm going to lose my child. It's like the more I try to love her, the more she pushes away. The more you give someone, the more it hurts. Why do you do this to me, God? It feels like everyone's turned their back on me, even you now. Last time we spoke, Samantha told me to stay out of her life. Maybe I shouldn't go where I'm clearly not welcome. Am I welcome with you, Lord? We need to understand, even if we don't feel like it, even if our circumstances say otherwise, God is abounding in love. This vignette reminds us there are moments in our life that remind us that love is risky. When you put your heart out there, it is very possible it will be trampled. Now the challenge is, if we're not careful, because of our, our wounded hearts, we might try to protect our heart by isolating ourselves. But in isolating ourselves, we're actually keeping out of our lives the very thing that will bring healing to our wounded heart, which is love. See, God is abounding in love, which means no one can stop his love. That means the resources of his love are unlimited. Maybe you can think back when you were dating that special someone, and, and maybe you played that game, I love you, 
And they text back, no, I love you more. And you text back, no, I love you more, more, more. And they text back, oh, contraire, mon frere. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. You can never win that game with God. His love for you led him to the cross, sacrificing his life for you. But he rose from the dead because love could not be killed. His love for you never runs out. No matter how far you've wandered away, no matter how badly you've screwed up, no matter how angry or unfaithful or bitter you might be, his love is not dependent on what you do or what you've done. You know how I know? He didn't wait to see how your life turned out before deciding to die on the cross for you. It was already done. His love for you is real. Are you willing to receive his love? See, we've seen from the scriptures today that not only does God hurt along with us because of what happened, he also promises to treat us remarkably differently. See, if you're a little bit skittish around God because you've had the wrong view for so long, he gets it. If you're needing to take this whole thing slow, this relationship with God, that's totally fine. Even if you reject him for a while, he will not write you off. Even if you've been unfaithful to him, it doesn't mean he's not faithful to you. Even if you don't believe in him, it does not mean he does not believe in you. And I want to encourage you, if you have bitterness, if you have pain, if you have anger and hurt, God is big enough to absorb it. Take your pain to him. Don't try to isolate yourself. Allow other people to be God's hands and feet for you. Listen to 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. You're his. He's never gonna walk out on you. Even if you don't have faith in him, he has faith in you. This past week, I was trying to help a friend who was going through a difficult time and in reaching out, I was trying to negotiate and kind of set up something that I thought would help my friend. And in the end, my friend turned on me started yelling at me. And I could find myself just in that moment, just my heart racing and, and what's going on? This is my friend and now my friend is yelling at me. And in that moment, I, I could see I was triggered. And in the past, I, I might just allow that anger to, to, to overflow into my home, to, to get short with my wife and my kids who had nothing to do with this moment. Or maybe just go into the office, turn on the TV, just everybody leave me alone. But I tried something different. I, I turned to God. Now, I opened up the scriptures old school. I didn't even turn my phone on. I went to the, the Bible, and I opened it up. And, and what's funny is I'm old enough now that I can't read up close. So I thought I was about to read Psalm 33, and I had read that this, that morning. I just kind of opened to Psalm 33, and I was going to read Psalm 33, and then as I started read, reading it, I realized that's not what I read this morning. But instead I realized that it was exactly what I needed. It was exactly what I needed God to tell me. It says this, Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Take up shield and armor. Arise and come to my aid. Say to me, I am your salvation. Some of you might remember this. Last week I, I pointed out the word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. That means 
Jesus. It's been transliterated into English as Jesus. In this moment, it says, I am your Yeshua. I am your Jesus. Exactly in that moment, I was reminded, it's okay to put your heart on the line to help other people, to love other people, even if they bite back. His love is bigger. So in this moment, I want to encourage you. Some of us have actually been holding on to bitterness, an unanswered prayer that's turned us from God. And I want to actually say a prayer over you. It's a prayer from Ephesians 3. As the band comes out, I just want you in this moment just to be honest with God. Maybe there's something he wants you to let go of. Maybe there's something you've been blaming him for. And in this moment, I just want you to reframe according to this prayer. If it helps you to close your eyes as I pray this over you, then feel free. But this is my prayer for you. For this reason, I pray before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In this moment, as the band sings, reminding us of God's love, I want you to let go of whatever you're holding on to that's keeping you, a barrier that's keeping you from experiencing God's abounding, faithful love.